This podcast is sponsored by the Davenant Institute and Davenant Hall, reimagining theological education. Visit davenanthall.com. The Davenant Institute seeks to retrieve the riches of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Key to this mission is their educational arm, Davenant Hall. In an age where much theological education both overlooks the riches of church history and keeps students in debt, Davenant Hall is reimagining theological education. Davenant Hall takes full advantage of digital technology to make high-quality theological education affordable via online courses. Students can simply audit a single class or enroll in a degree program, including subject-specific certificates, PhD supervision, and the flagship MLIT program, which includes pastoral tracks for Baptist, Anglican, and Reformed or Presbyterian ministry. Enroll in classes at any time during the academic year. Knowing that in-person fellowship is key to Christian formation, Davenant hosts regular residentials at their study center in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of South Carolina. Registration for spring term 2024 classes running April to June is now open. Register by March 27th. Fees start at just $225 for a 10-week class with a two-hour Zoom class from expert professors each week. Spring term classes include Male and Female in Modernity with Alistair Roberts, The Reformation and the Modern World with Michael Lynch, Philosophy as a Way of Life with Joseph Minnick and more. Visit DavenantHall.com to find out more. That's DavenantHall.com. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Impassibility is saying that God is never acted upon by anything. Nothing causes him to be what he is. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by my co-host, James Dalzell. James, how are you? Great. Good to be here. We are excited today because we have the opportunity to talk to uh, Sam Renahan about a book entitled God Without Passions, A Primer. It's a little book. It was meant for kind of a Sunday school type uh, uh, situation, but both James and I are persuaded it's an outstanding book. So James, you want to say any other words of introduction? Sam is a pastor. We've had him on before. He is also an adjunct faculty member at IRBS Theological Seminary. What else should I add? Sam does the uh, does the Spanish Sunday school class. Uh, preaches in English. is an adjunct professor at the seminary, and uh, where is, you also are an adjunct right, professor. We are both on the faculty there, at IRBS. And Sam is um, uh, becoming prolific, um, but we don't want to overlook this little book mm-hmm. uh, that he put out a couple of years ago. Maybe, and I w- I'm going to put this down before we get into some of the guts of it with Sam. Arguably, the most um, accessible yet orthodox introduction to the doctrine of divine impassibility there is. Um, I say arguably, but I don't know who would argue otherwise. So I'm just going to say it is the most accessible, and I dare you to prove otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> Not you, Sam. You you can stay out of it. You can. No, you don't have to promote your your own book. We'll no, <laughs> but we, we, we do think really highly of the book. We want as many people as possible to, to read it and to use it. So, Sam, hey, thanks for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you to both of you. I'm very excited to be with you again. Let me just start with a kind of definition. The book is entitled God Without Passions, which 
might sound to some people like a bad thing, that God has no passions. But what does impassibility mean? What do we mean when we say God is without passions? The definition of impassibility is that God uh, is not acted upon and cannot be acted upon uh, by anything, either inwardly or outwardly. What does that even what does that even mean? But think about the word passion, and it's related to words like patient. And so impassibility is saying that God is never the patient of an agent. He's never acted upon by anything. Nothing causes him to be what he is. He is what he is of his own, uh, by his own essence. And so impassibility says you can't make him anything more. You can't make him anything less. He's impassable. You can't make him the patient of your agency. So can I, can I put the first objection out there then to that definition? Because that's a clear definition. But um, why should we say God's that way? Uh, and doesn't that, as it were, banish him from his world, make him uncaring uh, about his world? Does it mean that? One of the things that I try to contend for in the book is that denying passions to God is a good thing because passions are imperfect. Uh, And what we find in God is instead of passions, we find perfections. And so the the book develops, uh, it tries to develop two things together. What are passions and affections in the human nature? And why is it that God doesn't have those, but rather has perfections? Okay, so you have a chapter on the human side of the equation, I think you call it. Yes. and, And I think that in terms of my own research and writing, that's probably been, I don't know, maybe the most not unique, but perhaps my best contribution to this discussion, because you can read better treatments of the theology proper side of it from, from your own writings and from others. But I think that something that I felt was at times, or as I read, it seemed to be missing. Okay. If I understand what passions and affections are in me, in a, in a human nature, mm-hmm. it helps me to better understand why I don't want God to be like that. And obviously it doesn't matter what I want, but why it's such a good thing that God is not like that. Because in the scriptures, he says, I'm, I'm not a man, and so therefore I don't repent and I don't have regret. You know, the Lord of hosts does not change his mind and why those are, why that's a good thing and why, why does that happen so much in us and why is it so wonderful that it doesn't happen to God and can't happen to God? But of course, you're not arguing that God isn't love and that God doesn't in fact display love to us or, or that God doesn't have anger or, or wrath. You're just saying we, we have to understand that in a very different way than we would understand it with respect to our, ourselves. Because I think that's sometimes the reaction people have. If you say God is impassable, then you're just sort of eliminating all of these things that the Bible says are true about him that are sort of dear to us. That's a very, a very good point, And it requires careful explanation. I'm going to use one instance to try to illustrate what what something is for, for man and what it is for God and why that makes it a perfection in God, but a passion in us. And I want to use the example of mercy. And we usually think about mercy as sort of suffering with someone and then helping them in their suffering. And we, and we think of that and we think, oh, well, if God is, so to speak, unfeeling, or if he doesn't have passions, can God have no mercy at all? And yet the scriptures say that he's the most merciful. Uh, so how do we understand mercy in God if it's not feeling my misery and then helping me because you feel my misery? And we come to realize that mercy properly defined 
is helping the helpless. And we as humans, we help the helpless that we relate to. We help the helpless that we have some connection to. We see their suffering and we feel it. Or, you know, you, you watch a, a puppy commercial about, oh, these poor puppies, won't you adopt <laughs> one? And we have mercy upon them because, you know, Sarah McLaughlin is singing to us and telling us that we should. And it moves us. It, it, she is the agent. We are the patients. She's moving us to the passion of mercy. You're, I like and, puppies too. Yeah, it's, right. like, it's like you were in James's house last night. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing, but it's, it's imperfect because we will have mercy on, on people that we relate to and only on people we relate to. Hmm. Uh, you, ha- if you have an enemy, let's say you have an enemy that someone you just don't like because you're, you're an imperfect human being and you're a sinful creature. And there's just some people you don't like and you, you don't help them in the way that you might help others. And so your mercy is dependent on your passion. It's dependent on you relating to something and being moved by it. So set that aside and say, okay, well, God's mercy is not like that. Rather God's mercy is helping the helpless from the fullness of his perfection, which means that God is free and able to have mercy upon all who call upon him. God is and able to have mercy upon all upon whom he wills to have mercy. And the scriptures affirm this, that he will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. He is able to do that because he is merciful of his own nature. Whereas we have to be moved to mercy. We have to be brought to that state. And so when we begin to say God is not certain things, that's simply the first half of the equation. That's the God is not a man. But when we get to the perfection side of it, we find, wow, it's so wonderful that God's mercy is like this. And this is why in Lamentations 3, it says that his mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. My mercies are not new every morning. If I wake up upset or stressed or angry or who knows what, I'm not very merciful. But every single day you can wake up and open your eyes and the Lord is just as merciful then as when you first went to sleep and every day before that and before you lived and after you'll die, et cetera, his mercies never come to an end because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. So I hope that that one example of mercy can help us to illustrate what it is in a creature, what it is in our creator, God, and why that is a passion in us, something we're moved to, and why that is a perfection in God, which he pours out on us from his own fullness. So really what, what we don't want to do is we don't want to confuse the way or the manner in which creatures or humans in this case are, are made to care uh, with the manner in which God cares because God cares. But, he's, but what we're saying is he, isn't, he doesn't require something to make him care. Absolutely. Like John says, God is love. I, I sometimes tell our people at our church, God is not loving. <laughs> and everyone kind of gasps. You're a terrible pastor. Slightly. Yeah. And then I say, <laughs> God is not loving. He is love. And one way in which um, some of the older theologians would illustrate this is they would say, it is better to be gold than to be golden. It is better to be fire than to be fired. You know, if something <laughs> is warmed up, it gains heat because of the fire that heated it. And then it loses that heat when the fire leaves it something is painted gold and it, it has an appearance and a participation in, in what is gold, but it is not gold itself. And so God does not participate in love. He is not heated up to love. He just is love, and which is so wonderful that he is love. He is mercy. He is goodness. He is holiness. He is righteousness. He is all his attributes. That's a wonderful thing. What about those Bible texts that talk about 
you know, because of this, God's anger was kindled against them. Th- those kinds of things that, that sometimes people argue against what you've just been articulating by saying, well, the plain sense of the Bible shows us God responding and reacting and pouring out anger because of something that's done. How, how do we understand those biblical passages in light of this? There's a, a few things to keep in mind. The first is that the same scriptures that say those things also caution us against reading them like it's a human agent where God says, I'm not a man that I should repent. I'm not a man that I should change my mind. I'm not a man that I should have regret. Uh, And so that, that tells us, okay, well, the passages that describe God's being, I am that I am and other passages, those are more fundamental and more definitive for my understanding of God. And I need to read other passages in light of that and qualified by that. So that, that would be step one is to say, well, okay, we have these Bible texts that appear to show God responding in time and such things, but we have other passages that say, I'm not like that. And, and we would do the same for descriptions of God's arm or other physical features, wings or, or such things. You know, God does not have physical features, but those, those physical metaphors do communicate truth to us. Uh, so also God being described in sort of a reactionary emotional language communicates things to us, but we shouldn't read it as a one-to-one description of God in the same way we don't read physical descriptions as one-to-one. But another thing is that for, for Reformed Christians uh, who believe that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass, hmm. for, for those same Christians to then say, look, this is God making up his mind or this is God reacting in time and space, wait a second, don't, don't we believe in a, in a simple immutable decree of all things whatsoever comes to pass? And so how, how does that comport? How does that fit uh, with God's decree? And so we need to understand that this, the simple and immutable decree of God plays out in time and space successively through event after event after event. And you can't read that succession of events of the outworking of the decree. You can't read that into God when God foreordained it from before time, I, that phrase doesn't even work, but you know what I mean. That's the way the scriptures talk mm-hmm. before the foundations of the world. So we can't reason the succession of temporal events that are decreed by God into some kind of succession in God himself. That would be to deny the decree and simply make God an, an agent of, of history and time and limit his infinity. So should we make then a distinction between, and you're drawing this distinction between the the manner in which we come to know God vis-a-vis the unfolding demonstrations of mercy, demonstrations of wrath, respective to human acts of atonement, repentance, or provocation, so that God decrees newness and decrees to show himself in newness, but isn't himself made new or altered intrinsically. Absolutely. For example, when we are saved, does does God change from uh, from wrath to not wrath against us. Many people would, would talk that way, would speak that way. And, and we can speak that way. It's just a rather imperfect way of speaking. But, but just think about it. Is God angry at me and then he ceases to be angry at me? Or is it that I change in relation to him? Uh, and, and the truth is that we change in relation to him. God's perfect holiness and justice, if a sinful creature approaches that, is the that same holiness and justice condemn me. I'm sinful. And so we call that wrath, God's justice against a sinful object. 
But if a, a righteous and holy object approaches a righteous and holy God, the same justice unchanged, the same holiness unchanged approves, uh, approves that perfect, that perfect creature or that righteous creature. And so that we would call that not wrath or, or uh, uh, a, a you could choose a number of words to say that God has been propitiated, et cetera. But it's not that a change has occurred in God. God decreed uh, everything from start to finish. And it's we that change in relation to God, not God who changes in relation to us or both. I think that's a helpful way of putting it because sometimes uh, you'll hear the objection that if God doesn't change from one intrinsic state of disposition, you know, wrath to a second and subsequent one, mercy um, or something like this, if he doesn't change, then that somehow strips away the reality and it, and it ends up saying he isn't really opposed to my sin and he isn't really merciful and loving and reconciled to me in his son. Um, and that's not what you're saying. You're not saying that God isn't really opposed to sin in every manifestation of that opposition or isn't really uh, concerned and uh, showing mercy to thousands and thousands of thousands when he draws them into covenant relationship. All you're denying is that the reality is some new state of being that came into God by the action of the creature upon him. Correct. And, and if it were a change that took place in God, what kind of confidence could we have that God wouldn't change back? And it is the question uh, of how did how did God's love for you come to be in God when it wasn't there before, if in fact the love and the mercy is new? In other words, can God acquire states of being not had? Anyway, we can we can go down that route. But I think your point is your point is taken, and Jonathan is going to move us to some other questions on this. As well, well. Sure. yeah, I mean, it, I think it is important to keep going down that road at some point in our thinking. But but I wanted to, just because we only have a couple minutes left, I wanted to move into chapter five of your book, which is entitled Personal Applications and Pastoral Implications. Sometimes when we're talking about these things, particularly in the, the direction we were heading in, it can begin to seem for many Christians as if this is just somewhat abstract and has no real concrete application to their lives or to their understanding of of ministry. So I, I wonder if you could walk us through in your mind what some of the important, and you've done this already, but what some of the important applications or implications of this doctrine uh, happen to be for us today. Yes, I, I think that there are very profound personal and pastoral applications. One of them has to do with uh, preaching the gospel and salvation. And we were just a moment ago talking about how the change from condemned to justify the change from uh, wrath against us to, to mercy to us is, is a change in us while God is unchanged. And so the reason why this is important is that when we preach the gospel, we warn the world and we say, God is holy. God is just, God is perfect. God will, will never change. You will never be able to buy him off. You will never be able to pay him. You'll never be able to cause him to give up his justice and his holiness to let you escape condemnation. It's impossible. You cannot change him. You are wicked and sinful by nature in Adam, and, and God is not going to give you a pass. He is unchangeable, and you cannot act upon him to alter that, which sounds entirely, utterly hopeless, and indeed it is in ourselves. But the good news is that we tell people this same perfectly righteous and just and holy God has provided a perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ. And for all those who shelter in him, for all those who trust and cling to him by faith, receiving and resting in him by faith, 
they receive perfect righteousness, complete forgiveness and perfect righteousness. And so that same perfection in God of justice and holiness now looks at you in Christ and that perfect justice and righteousness can never condemn you now. Now that you've been forgiven, now that you are in Christ with his righteousness, the same perfection of God that previously would never justify you in yourself now will never condemn you. There's no condemnation for you. And so we, we can praise the same attribute or attributes of righteousness and holiness in God as we preach the gospel, showing the hopelessness of the unbeliever in, in and of themselves and the, the absolute security and safety of the believer. And that all depends upon God not being able to be acted upon. No one can change him or move him away from his perfect holiness and justice. That makes the preaching of the gospel so powerful to the unbeliever and so refreshing and, and really, what's the word I'm looking for? Lifelong lasting. You know, it, it, it is always the case every day you wake up the same perfection of righteousness declares me righteous in Jesus Christ every single day to the moment that I close my eyes in death. So that's, that's the first thing that I think is of utmost importance to emphasize from this doctrine and then another thing is that as God's children building building from this, you know, can we trust his promises? Can we can we trust the things that he has sworn to us? And as we already quoted from Lamentations, those precious words of the steadfast love of the Lord never ceasing and his mercies never coming to a, to an end. The Lord is my portion. We have a perfect inheritance in him. We have as Psalm 16 says, fullness of joy in his presence. There there is nothing better than God and we have him and we know he will not change. And so everything he, he tells us, everything he promises to us, we can trust it uh, because he will not change. And um, if, if we had time, I would read all sorts of quotes to you of, of theologians who, who say these wonderful things about God's immutability and impassibility being the foundation of our hope and our comfort. They, they talk about him sometimes as being the lowest foundation which means that God depends on nothing to be who God is and everything else depends upon him. And so if we depend upon that, which is independent, that which is say and is unchangeable, then we have the most sure and stable foundation for our faith possible. Uh, there's nothing more certain. There's nothing more simple. There's nothing more absolute. There's no foundation beneath it. It is the foundation of everything. And so whether it's preaching the gospel or being comforted by God's promises, uh, these these things depend upon divine impassibility and divine immutability, and they they give us an, a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, to use the words of Hebrews. Uh, every day of our lives, uh, from from womb to tomb, from cradle to crypt. I think Sam, one day uh, we're going to hold a general council, and then and then W, the theologian of the divine perfections. Uh, because of your emphasis upon the perfection, uh, I think what I hear you saying is that we can proclaim as warning to the unbeliever that his hatred against sin is perfect. It's not It's not sort of half-hearted, incomplete, willy-nilly, comes and goes, as it were. It is his nature to be opposed, and you can't hope to alter that or tweak that. And by the same token, his love and even his great mercy is equally perfect. And so the idea of passionate love, I think, as I understand uh, how you were talking about passions, is that passionate love is, in fact, passionate wrath as opposed to perfect, unchanging holiness is, in fact, um, passionate love would be an imperfect love. 
Um, not, not, not real love, but an imperfect real love. Yes. I mean, if we're all honest, um, we love our spouses, we love our children more or less at different times, depending on different circumstances. We love the Lord more or less depending on different times and different circumstances. You know, we're like the psalmist in Psalm 73 who eventually confesses, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Uh, and all the while God was unchanging. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So God's unchanging, perfect love, God is love, is so different than my love. And that's such a comfort. I think that's a good note uh, to end on, uh, a real encouragement. And we would like to encourage our listeners, if you haven't already, uh, to acquire a copy of Sam's book, God Without Passions, a primer, um, a short, readable, inexpensive, what other adjective can I give to this book? Um, good for study groups, has study questions at the end of each chapter. But I think what you're going to find is that far from being a sort of a theological riddle, God Without Passions, what we'll find when we unpack this is that God Without Passions is in fact necessary to the affirmation of God's perfect and unbounded love in the gospel. And uh, Sam, we're in your debt for being a, a clear and accessible voice on this traditional doctrine that really does, it does deserve to make a comeback. And we're glad that you're one of the one of the people out there helping that happen. But we would really encourage our listeners, uh, if you've already got it, I'll even throw this in there. It's a good time to buy another copy and uh, and pass along the good news of passionless and therefore perfect love of God. Sam, thanks for joining us uh, today to talk about this. Thank you, James. And thank you, Jonathan. James, uh, you had some pretty high praise for this book at the beginning, but I assume you are sticking by it. Yeah, I'm sticking by it. You, you gave an impassioned commercial at the end, and uh, I, I, I would endorse it. It's, it's a book that we want in as many people's hands as possible. And to that end, if you'd like to enter for a chance to win uh, God Without Passions, a primer by Sam Renahan, uh, you can do that by going to placefortruth.org, clicking on the Theology on the Go link, and then there'll be a, a place for you to enter there. Uh, we want to thank you for listening. If you know someone else who might be interested in this podcast, please pass the word along to them. Also, if you're able to donate, if you're able to help in any way financially, you can do that on AllianceNet.org or on PlaceForTruth.org. Both of those sites have a button for donations, which we always appreciate. And we'd love to hear from you as well. If you have suggestions or, or thoughts or pushback from anything that we say here on the show. So thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth.